Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they have become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they, knew, they, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I want to preach to you this morning on the title, The State of Humanity. The State of Humanity. Let's pray and ask God for His help. Father, we do ask that You would help us as we study Your text this morning. I pray that You would help me to speak Your truth, not merely my ideas. I pray that You would give our people in this room a sense of receptivity to Your Word. Humble us, God, before this revelation of, of the state of humanity. Shape us and fashion us. Let us, God, be warned by this text, but also be driven to the hope that we have in the gospel message. We look forward to what you're going to do in our hearts over the next few minutes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The state of humanity. We could talk about the state of Russia. We could talk about the state of Ukraine. We could talk about the state of America. 
This morning I want to talk about the state of humanity. What state are we in as a human race? Before dawn on Thursday morning, explosions woke Ukrainians. With the intensity of wars gone by. As I was reading the news, one NATO, NATO official said that this invasion reminds him of something that he thought was a thing of the past. Haven't we moved beyond this? Aren't we progressing toward some kind of world peace? And as I continued to read some of the news, I read some comments on uh, the question of whether or not the Cold War ever really ended, a renewed fear of nuclear weapons, peace on earth, seems to be the elusive dream of fiction. This week I was reminded of a sermon that I once heard by Martin Lloyd-Jones who preached around World War II. I wasn't alive during that time. It was a recording I heard. During that time, not the particular sermon I, I'm going to reference, but during that time he was preaching in London during World War II and a blast went off literally just around the corner from the church as London was being bombed the entire church building shook and plaster fell from the ceiling onto the congregants and onto the preacher. Lloyd-Jones, after the, shook, uh, the, the shaking of the building stopped, Lloyd-Jones dusted the plaster off of his shoulders and continued preaching the text that he was in. Didn't miss a beat. Why? It's because he knew that what, what, this, this, what this reveals to us, what this text points us to, is the most important thing anybody can hear. He knew that our hope was not something out there, but something that God has revealed to us in here. So in one sermon I listened to from Lloyd-Jones during that time, I remember him saying, why? Uh, do nations continue to war with each other? Because, you know, at that point, they thought maybe we've, maybe in all of our progress and all of our development, we've arrived at some kind of peace on earth, and then there's two world wars. And my point this morning in bringing up war is the fact that it continues, that we still haven't arrived at some kind of post-war society. And so he questioned, why does this continue? Why do nations war against other nations? The answer is this. Nations, he said, will always war against other nations as long as humans war against other humans. Nations will always try to take another nation as long as a man tries to take another man's wife. Nations will always be greedy for what is not theirs as long as individuals are greedy for what is not theirs. 
You see, his point is that the problem is not out there, but the problem is in here. And the solution is not out there, but the solution is in here. The solution to our problem is not going to be found in peace treaties, in, in uh, summits. Now, this isn't to shrug our shoulders at war. This isn't to, isn't to shrug our shoulders at the pursuit of peace. We are biblically to pray for our leaders, to pray for peace. We pray that things don't get worse. But today what we're going to do is look at a, a, an honest glimpse as to the problem of, of humanity. We're looking at verses 18 through 32 in Romans chapter 1. And it has been called by one scholar the most dreadful description of the human race in all of literature. You know, we, 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 we think of people as generally okay. Like, as we, as we read these verses, and as we think about, like, this is a description of the human race... It sounds kind of extreme to some ears, maybe to most, because people can present as pretty nice. And as a matter of fact, uh, niceness might be more of a problem than, people, than if people just let their feelings hang out, because niceness can kind of create a cover for us. And we, we start to believe that humans are actually generally pretty good like aren't we okay and these kind of questions then really plague gospel ministry because we think well if people are generally good and okay and not really that bad and that sinful then is the gospel all that important is it really so important for me to share the gospel with somebody who's lost when they seem to be okay is gospel you know i would put it like this some people would be religious and they would live otherwise good lives in their mind and religion is like a nice little additive to their life. Whereas others come along and question why are we even adding religion to your life when everything is otherwise pretty good. Are you with me? But the Bible says that what we have revealed in the gospel message through the, the scriptures is actually life. Like we actually need this revelation in order to have life. Why? Why? It's because we're worse than we think we are. Like what I just read, verses 18 through 32 of Romans chapter 1, is a horrific description of the human race which we don't believe to be true. And I want to come to God's word this morning and I just want to try to lift it up and I want to say whether or not we believe this or feel this is the case. This is, this is what God has revealed about us, about the human race. 
I think our problem is, is that we, we so often look at the human race through our own eyes. This morning we get a unique glimpse into the human race through God's eyes. So I have, I have two points that I want to try to use to explain this text to you. The first point is that God's standard has been revealed, clearly. And the second point is that God's standard has been rejected, clearly, by all humans everywhere. So let's get into it. Verse 18, God's standard is understood. Verse 18, he says, for the wrath of God, everybody say wrath of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, that word men there is a reference to the Greeks. How do we know that? It's because the very next chapter, he turns to the Jews. Remember, the previous verse, he says that the gospel is going forward to the Jews and the Greeks or the Gentiles. And now what he's doing is he's saying, let me talk about the Gentiles, all men everywhere. Men as in men and women. All people everywhere. And then next he's going to talk about the, the, the Jews, the state of the Jews. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, people everywhere, who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? They suppress the truth. The truth here is a, is a word for God's standard. God has a particular standard for humanity, meaning we don't judge how we're doing based on Joel's standard we don't judge how we're doing based on your personal standard. We judge how we're doing based on God's standard. And it says that we have suppressed it. Now, suppressed there means, uh, mean, mean, means to, to downplay it, to minimize it, to ignore it. What he's saying is, is that all people everywhere, yes, even people who have never heard the name of Jesus on an island somewhere, all people everywhere, know the standard of God and suppress it, ignore it. Every continent, every country, every people group, male, female, child, young, old, everybody knows God's standard and suppresses it. What is God's posture then toward humanity? You've already said it. It's the wrath of God. God's wrath. God's wrath. What is that? Wrath is another word for anger. This is God's rightful, holy, pure anger toward humanity for suppressing his standard. It's his rightful response. God owns humanity. God is the creator of humanity. God, listen to this, has jealousy biblically for humanity. We think of jealousy as bad. Shai Lin once put it like this. He said, most of the time, human jealousy will hurt you. But when it comes to God, his jealousy is a virtue. You see, wrath, God's anger, is the other side of his jealousy. It's right. It's his pure judgment on us. So, so his posture toward us is wrath. Why? Look at verse 19. We've got to continue. Why wrath? For, here's the reason. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. All people everywhere. 
for his invisible attributes. Meaning the things that you don't need the Bible for. There are attributes of God that you can know that you don't need the Bible for. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made in creation, in nature. So they, who's they, that's all people everywhere, are without excuse. There was once someone who was asked a question, would God send an innocent person to hell? And the response was, no. God would not send an innocent person to hell. But the problem is that there are no innocent people. Everybody everywhere has had the invisible attributes of God plainly revealed to them just simply through looking up to the sky. This teaches us two things. Number one, it teaches us that God has revealed to the world through nature His standard. And number two, God has revealed to everybody through nature His own invisible attributes. Verse 19, it says, what can be known about God is plain to them. They know God. Jody texted me earlier this week and then uh, left me a two-minute voice text, which I typically despise. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I'll push play. I, listened to, I almost didn't listen to it. I've already told Stephanie, stop voice texting me. Just text me. Or call me. Because here's how a voice... No, I'm not going to go. I'm going on a rabbit trail. But she sent, Jody sent me a two-minute voice text, and I was like, man, that was worth listening to. She said uh, she was driving down the road, and she sees like these birds flying in formation. And then she thinks to herself, how do these birds know how to fly in this formation? There's reason to it. And in order for there to be reason... There has to be thought. And in order for there to be thought, there has to be a thinker. And in order for there to be a thinker behind all of nature, there's got to be a designer. That's good logic, isn't it? This is what he's saying in verse 19. What can be known about God, his invisible attributes, is plain to them. Meaning, when you just look at creation... You see God's eternality, you see his wisdom, you see his intellect, you see his power, you see his beauty. All of these things are clearly perceived through the things that are made. And so what he's going on to say is that they are without excuse. Everybody knows God. And they are without excuse. The issue, you see, is not that somebody doesn't know God. Sometimes uh, when I've been in conversations about somebody who does, who's not a Christian, uh, I'll use the phrase, they don't know God. And then I have to pause and stop myself and correct myself and, and think more biblically about this. They actually do know God. They don't know His saving attributes. They don't know Christ. But they know enough about God to condemn them. It's made plain to them. They're rejectors of God. They're rebels against God. 
Meaning when all common grace one day is gone. When all of our inhibitions are dropped. When all of our niceness fails, you will have every human being stand before God as a hater of God. That's what he's saying here. Unless there's some kind of saving grace somehow. This is our state. I remember I listened to R.C. Sproul once in Philadelphia, and uh, there he's, he was talking about uh, speaking to a group of atheists, and he said uh, that when he was talking to these atheists at a college campus, he told them, he said, uh, he said, your problem is not that you don't believe in God. Your problem is that you hate God. I think I've told you this before. But I, 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 it stuck with me because I think he's so right. You know, what about atheists? Well, they too know God. And they hate him. To the degree that they will adopt a faith system which says he does not exist. So in verses 18 through 20, what we see then is God's standard has been revealed. Therefore, nobody's without excuse. That's his argument that God is making through Paul. Now, verses 21 through 32 gives us the evidence of this. So my second point is that God's standard has been rejected, and Paul gives us four ways that we see it, four bits of evidence. Idols, lusts, corruption, indifference. Let's walk through these. Number one, idols, verse 21 through 25. First evidence that God's standard has been rejected. Verse 21, verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became, what's the word? Fools. And verse 23, exchanged the glory of God, the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust their, of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, and because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, cre- the creature rather than, than the creator. And then he kind of busts into this little doxology. As soon as, as, soon as Paul mentions creator, he pauses and he says, who is blessed forever. Amen. What's the first bit of evidence that Paul is giving that the Romans, the Greeks, the Gentiles, all people everywhere have rejected God's standard? He says idols. They've built idols for themselves. If you were to go to Rome today, you would see all of these beautiful statues made out of marble. They are uh, relics. They are treasured by tourists who go to Rome today. But back then, they were idols. They were seen as gods to be worshipped. Now, do we have our idols today? Our idols might not be made out of wood, and our idols might not be made out of marble. But we have idols, don't we? We build for ourselves our own idols. Sex. Money. Position. Power. A sense of self. A sense of fulfillment. We have our own idols that drive our worship today. Why do we have idols? He goes on. He gives us three reasons why we have idols. Number one, it's because we are not thankful for God. 
Look at verse 21. He says, they don't honor God and they don't thank God. Os Guinness put it this way. He says, rebellion against God does not begin with the clenched fist of atheism, but with the self-satisfied heart of the one for whom thank you is redundant. Meaning, a spirit of ingratitude is the stuff that hell is made of. I've got to ask myself, am I a thankful individual? Do I have a spirit of thankfulness that guides my life? Are you thankful? Are you thankful for God? Are you thankful for God's people? Are you thankful for the things that God has given you? Do you recognize that all good things in your life are from God? As the old hymn says, count your many blessings. Name them one by one. Oh, church, do not embrace and create this kind of hell on earth through a spirit of ingratitude to God. This is why they're building idols. It's because they don't give God thanks. Second reason is because our minds aren't right. We don't think right. Verse 22, he says, they claim to be wise, but they're fools. Their minds are dulled from, from this, the, the, the uh, demand of, of a dictator to the deceit of drugs to the, the, the subtle perversion of, of trampling over someone else to just get a position. I mean, I could just go on. We think we are in the right. We think we're doing the right thing. We think we are justified in our sin. And he's saying that, that even though we claim to be wise, we're actually fools. There's, our, our sinful depravity has so infected us that we don't even realize we're sinning. As fools, what do we do? Well, here's the third reason we worship idols. We worship idols because our, our false gods promise glory. So in verse 23, he says they exchanged. Everybody say exchanged. They exchanged something for something else. They exchanged, he says, the glory of God for the glory of these idols. Why would a wife leave her husband for another man? It's because that situation offers, offers her some level of glory. Why would a man indulge in internet pornography? It's because that offers some level of glory. Why would a man kill another man in the streets? It's because it offers glory. Why would a man cheat? It's because it offers glory. Why would uh, 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 someone acquire wealth and become greedy and not share it? It's because it offers some kind of glory. What he's saying is, is that we, we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the glory of these images. Now, the deceitfulness of sin, the dulling of the mind, is why they offer you some kind of glory. Like you think that what you can get out of these idols is better than what God can give you. And so there's a willing exchange. And I'm going after these idols instead of after God. This is why we build idols and worship them. Because we're not thankful for God, because our minds aren't right, and because our false gods promise 
glory. And so in verse 24, we see the kind of judgment that God has given them to in this moment. It says, He gave them up. That is passive. It's not like the hell in eternity, which is God's active judgment, but this is the hell on earth, which is God's passive judgment, giving them up to these things. Allowing them to have their gods. Paul is saying, look around. Look around, Romans. See the ritualized prostitution. Marriage is falling apart. Murders. Unhappiness. Bitterness. Thanklessness. Critical spirits. What he's saying is is that there is a passive judgment of God in which God has given humanity over to these idols, to these sins. Secondly, so the, the, the first evidence that we've rejected God's standard is idols. The second evidence is lust, our lust. Look at verse 26. He goes on to say, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their reward. Now, a couple comments on this, these verses. First, the issue that Paul's addressing here is not a temptation but rather a sinful act. He says nothing of what we might call same-sex attraction today, or an inclination, or a temptation toward. But he focuses here on the act itself. Meaning, if a Christian were to ever confess to you a temptation toward same-sex activity, don't put them into a category that the Bible hasn't given us. Meaning there there are categories that the world comes up with, such as gay, that is not a biblical category. That's a social construct, right? It's 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 a social category that the world has put people into. The Bible just thinks more simply than that. The Bible sees things as temptations, and then acting out on those temptations. So Paul doesn't say anything about the condemnation of being tempted towards something. We're all tempted toward all kinds of things. The question is, what do we do with those temptations? Are you with me? The the second thing I want to say here is that this this does categorically condemn same-sex activity. Now, some thinkers today... Uh, and I see this, I, I call this TikTok theology. On TikTok, I've seen a, a number of like theologians who um, kind of go on different uh, directions on these sort of things. Um, and you'll hear things like, well, Romans 1 is, is referring to prostitution, or Romans 1 is only referring to, uh, to rape, or even pedophilia. Uh, but the simple answer to that is that it's, it's, it's not just referring to those things. Um, he begins here with saying that women have willingly and voluntarily 
been driven in passion for other women. And there's no evidence in all of the ancient world that women were involved in prostitution or rape or pedophilia with other women. Because then he goes on to say, in the same way, uh, that's the way the NIV translates it, or likewise in the ESV, the men gave up natural relations for the women. So the, the same kind of thing we see happening with the women, burning with desire for other women, he says, in this, that same way, men burn with, other, or with desire for other, uh, for other men and commit then, again, the action is the issue here, shameful acts. So we could say that broadly that he's referring to male and female homosexual same-sex activity. Now, third thing I want to say on this is that this is an example of rebellion against God, not the only way to rebel against God. Remember, Paul's using examples here. Now, I do want to ask this question, why this example and not other examples? For instance, murder is also contrary to nature. Nature teaches us that it is God's law not to kill an innocent person. Uh, Racism is contrary to nature. Nature teaches us that we are all equal, that, that we are not to dehumanize another person because of the color of their skin. Meaning all sin and sinful ways of thinking are contrary to nature. So why does he use then this example of homosexual practice as the example? Well, it's interesting. You go back 400 years before Paul, and there was a man named Aristotle. And Aristotle taught that affection between a man and a woman is, quote, according to nature. Meaning, in the Roman world, they believed that homosexual activity was actually against nature. Yet... It was rampant in Rome. So I think what Paul's saying is is that even your own philosophers have taught that this is against nature, yet that has been no hindrance against participating in this kind of activity. Meaning, God has revealed clearly His standard in nature which even you believe. It's even recognized by the Greeks. Therefore, you are clearly rejecting God. You following his logic there? Now, I should say this. All sexual lust is a perversion of what God has created. All sexual lust, all sexual sin and desire uh, that is is wrong... Uh, is a perversion of God's good gift. It's not trusting God with his design. Homosexuality, yes, but also pornography, pedophilia, sex before marriage, adultery, even the dehumanizing of, of a woman or a man and turning them into a sexual object is a perversion of God's good gift of sex. Now he says here that God gave them up to this. Again, we see this passive judgment of God in which God, in a a sense, sort of takes his hands off and he's saying, you're you're pulling the rope to hang yourself and I'm just going to give you the rope. 
Knowing how an Eskimo kills a, a wolf can be helpful here. I've read, supposedly, an Eskimo kills a wolf in this way. He takes a knife, a sharp knife, dips it in another animal's blood, and freezes it. And then he repeats that process until he's made for himself a nice little bloody popsicle. And then he sticks the popsicle in the snow and waits for the wolf to come. At night, the wolf comes, smells the blood, and starts licking. And he licks, and he licks, and he licks, and his craving for blood becomes so great that he doesn't notice the, the razor-sharp edge of the knife. And he continues to lick, so enjoying himself that he doesn't feel the sting on his own tongue, satisfied by the warmth of his own blood and craving more and more and more until the sun rises and the Eskimo finds the wolf dead in the snow. Now, this is the haunting picture of all of us as human beings, consumed by our own lusts, going after our sin more and more and more, and not even realizing, dulled in our minds, not even realizing it's killing us. James 1.7 says, but each man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. Lust. The third evidence that we have rejected God's standard is corruption. Look at verse 28. He says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. That is a corrupt mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Now look at this list. How do they treat fellow man? They are, this is all humans everywhere. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceitfulness, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Meaning if somebody thinks you're better than someone else because they participate in, say, same-sex activity. Can I just point out that he, uses, he says gossip in the same breath? If you think you're better because, you know, you're not as bad as, quote, those people over there, can I just point out the fact that he says disobedient to parents in the same breath? What he's saying is, is that this is the picture of the human race. Now, some people might say that's a little extreme. I don't buy it. I don't think humans are that bad. All right, here's a simple test. Let's just reverse each one of them. And ask ourselves, does this accurately describe the human race? In reverse, they are, humanity is, full of kindness, life, peace, honesty, goodwill. They are slow to speak, encouragers, lovers of God, respectful, meek, humble, inventors of good, obedient to parents, wise, faithful, considerate, compassionate. Meaning if you don't buy it in the negative, Maybe you'll buy it if I put it in the positive. That's not a description of who we are. Yeah, there are some characteristics that we see sprinkled into the human race, but that is what we would understand theologically to be God's common grace. His restraint of sin in the world to where we're not as bad as we could be because he's kind of like restraining us and holding us here. 
But I believe that God, through Paul, is, is right in this description of our corruption as a human race. And lastly, fourth bit of evidence that we have rejected the standard of God, and that is indifference. Indifference. Look at verse 32 as we close. He says, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Indifference almost not, might not be a strong enough word. This is like blatant indifference. Indifference to sin, but also approving uh, all of this corruption of the human race. As a summary, what he's saying is, is that deep in the human conscience, we know God. Deep in our conscience, we know God's standard. And deep in the human heart, we are guilty of rebelling against God, suppressing His truth. Because of the dullness of our minds, and therefore, we are participating as a regime against God. Not only doing these things, but condoning and giving approval to those who do. So what is our response, church? I mean, I could just, I, I preached the rest of Romans 1, I could just pray and say, let's, let's go in peace. But I feel like you might need some good news. Look, verse 18 begins with four, meaning this entire section, all right, 18 through 32, is connected with the previous two verses. And what does Paul say in his previous verses? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. All of this is yet just another reason as to why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. So what's our response? Well, I think our first response is take heed. Listen to the doctor. Or maybe in Keisha's case, listen to the mechanic. Let me tell you a story about Keisha. I got her permission, don't worry. So a couple years ago, Keisha, Keisha's mechanic told her that she needed CV joints. The lower CV, whatever, they were bad, they needed to be replaced. And so he gave her a quote of $1,200. And she said, I can't afford to take care of this problem. And so she went ahead online and bought some parts online. She was going to try to do it herself. But she bought the wrong parts. You remember this, Keisha? She bought the wrong parts and kept driving on the bad CV joints until she got to work one day and her wheel broke off and the ball joints broke and her fender was now destroyed. <laughs> and she was sitting, I'm laughing. I'm laughing at the irony of it. I'm laughing because I love Keisha so much. My, my point is this, if we don't take care of sin, sin will destroy us. And if we don't listen to the mechanic and take care of the CV joints on your car, your wheel might come off. And now your $1,200 bill goes to a $5,000 bill. If we don't 
if we don't heed this warning and fight against all that we've read today as a warning from God for us. Why? Because the cost is too high. Oh, I love my idols too much. I love these things too much. The cost is too high. What I'm saying is that your whole life will one day break. And it it, it will be a cost that you are not ready, not willing, and unable to pay. So like I said, verse 18 starts with a four, meaning all of this is connected with the previous declaration that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel message. So what is our response? Well, first is, let's, let's take heed and let's hear what, what God is saying. But secondly, church, let's love the gospel. Let's recognize that we need gospel ministry. It's not just nice, some nice little side religious thing for us to do, but it really is the whole of our life. Whether you're laying your kids down at night, whether you're going to job in the morning, whether you're uh, talking with your roommate, like the gospel, gospel ministry really ought to be the, the, the house that we live in, in a sense. Why? Because this is an accurate description of the human race. Here's what, he, here's what we see is that creation reveals enough about God to condemn your friend. But your friend needs the gospel message specially revealed through Christ, through the Bible, in order to be saved. And church, good news. God has not left us with Romans 1, 18 through 32. Now, we are not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Even the person who is reading this and saying, man, this is a description of my life. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for you. Christ died on the cross. He took not just the passive judgment of God, but the active judgment of God for your sin on Himself as He hung there on the cross and died. And Christ bore all of God's wrath for your sin, rising from the dead three days later, defeating death, defeating sin, buried all in the ground, risen to new life, coronated as the King, and He calls us, to all who turn from their sins and trust in Him. It's like you've got the bad CV joints and He just gives you a whole new car. It's like you're this wolf who's been consumed with your own lusts, bleeding out, dulled in your mind, not even realizing it, dead. And He brings you back to life. This is the power of the gospel. You know, I said that there are no innocent people. Well, there was one innocent person who walked this planet. And that innocent human being now sits at the right hand of the Father and rules and reigns. I don't care what's going on in the world. He says... 
In this world, you're going to have tribulations. In this world, you're, you're going to have problems. But behold, I have overcome the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And whoever believes on Him shall, shall not perish in their sins, but have eternal life. Does anybody believe that? And you say, yeah, but, but the wages of sin is death. And God responds, yes, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Amen. And so I stand on nothing else but Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Him my hope is built. He is our solid rock, our sweetest frame church, holy lean on Jesus' name. Amen? Father, we thank You, Lord, for the hope of the Gospel, even as we have looked at such a, 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 a drastic and terrible, terrible description of the human race this morning. Father, we, we recognize that You have told us that not to leave us with feeling hopeless, but to point us to the hope that we have in the Gospel. I pray that everybody here will cling to Christ this morning and find new life in Him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.